Has anybody ever had that experience where you wake up in the middle of the night and the house is dark and you're trying to get wherever it is that you're going in the house and you're not sure how you're going to get there? Anybody ever experienced that? And in the midst of that, you discover all sorts of um, unknown um, dangers like Legos on bare feet, uh, like a trash can that was moved and is not where it was supposed to be, uh, sometimes a couch that gets moved and, and your feet find that in a way that's unpleasant. Um, but in the midst of all of that, as soon as a light comes on, it's like all of a sudden you can start to see what's around, right? And in that moment that the light comes, that you begin to walk in the light, all of a sudden the dangers are not nearly as dangerous because you can see them a long way off. The obstacles are no longer obstacles, right? Because you can identify them, you can see them. Um, the, there, there isn't that fear that oftentimes people have when they're afraid of the dark because in the light, everything is different. We start this week in 1 John, um, in, the, in the, the book of 1 John, and there's a phrase in there that the phrase is, in the light, and that's our theme uh, for, for uh, this, this series that comes from 1 John. You'll see over and over again that John says, if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That concept that we want to just really kind of focus on is what, it, what does it look like to be in the light? Um, now, I, I just want to, I, I kind of want to assume right now that nobody knows anything about this particular book, about the author, any of it. So if you know all this stuff, just nod your head and say, oh, yes, I, I know all that. Um, but if you don't, that's okay. Here's the deal. What do we know about the author of 1 John? We know, um, if you look at it, you'll see that there's not, uh, he doesn't name himself in the, in the book, if you've got it open or look in there, he doesn't say, oh, this letter's from John. Um, he just jumps right in. But the first century historians, the second century historians, all attribute it to John, who was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, one of the closest followers of Jesus. We know that John had a brother named James. Um, James was older, and that Jesus came to them, that they were fishermen, and Jesus came to him at the Sea of Galilee and said, hey, leave your boats there, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And James and John said, yeah, we'll do that. And they left it all to follow Jesus. We know that their dad's name was Zebedee. Uh, I, think, I just think that's a fun name, Zebedee. I, uh, you can name your next son Zebedee, all right? Uh, push for that. It's a fun name. And we know that, I, I think, I say we know this, I think that their mom was kind of a stage mom. You know what a stage mom is, right? The, in, in their kid's business. Because in Matthew 22, James and John's mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, when you come into your glory, would you have one of my sons on your right and the other son on your left? That's a stage mom, right? Grown men jumping into that conversation to try and, and advocate for them and, and to give them a position of power. Now, if you've ever read that account before from Matthew 22, you know that the other disciples did not uh, respond real favorably to that. They didn't think that that was all that great. Um, but that out of that, Jesus taught and said, hey, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you got to be a servant. 
First shall be last. The last shall be first. You, you show your position by serving others. Really, really cool encounter that happened as a result of James and John's mom, the stage mom, uh, Father Zebedee. Um, what else do we know about, um, about them? We, we don't know this, but you can kind of read between the lines. It's interesting. Most of the time we think of the fishermen as, as poor, um, you know, blue-collar, worker-bee kind of guys that didn't have a lot. Um, I think when you really look at the Scripture um, and understand the historical context of it, in that area around the Sea of Galilee, there weren't a lot of trees. Lumber was at a premium. And James and John had multiple boats. It says that they left their boats to follow Jesus. So they had some assets. They had some resources. They probably had some financial strength in a way that we don't typically describe them. Um, it's interesting to me that when Jesus was crucified, when Jesus was betrayed and they, and they take him from the garden and take him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, Annas, that, that they're there and Jesus is on trial, who's in the background in the courtyard there? It's John, the guy who wrote this book. If John was completely an outsider, if, if he didn't have any connections, they probably would have thrown him out from that area. So he probably had some influence and some connections um, there around the high priest's house. He, he probably had some influence that was there. Um, we know that, um, that John was probably significantly younger than Jesus. One historian, uh, one commentator that I read said that they thought that John, when Jesus called him, was probably 14, 15, 16 years old, which to us makes us go, that's crazy. I never pictured that before. But if you think about Jewish culture, when you're 12 and go through bar mitzvah, at that point you become a man. He would have learned the trade of fishermen, uh, of, of fishing early, and, um, and it's possible because the books that John wrote are dated somewhere typically between 85 and 95 AD, some even into the second century that he wrote. Because John wrote five different books that are in the New Testament. He wrote the, the Gospel of John, uh, the biography of John from his perspective, and he wrote it to try and kind of fill in some gaps that, to tell some things that Matthew, um, Mark, and Luke had not told. He wrote the three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. This letter that we're going to be studying for the next several weeks is 1 John because it was the first letter that John wrote. Yeah, 1, 2, and 3 John. And he wrote the book of Revelation, the book that describes eternity and heaven uh, in, in such an incredible way, a book of prophecy that's there. Um, all of those were written later in his life when, when he was uh, really an older man. John was the only disciple of Jesus that wasn't martyred, interestingly enough. Um, it's imp the reason I share that is because the historical context of Scripture is critical for us to understand. Let me say that again. The historical context of Scripture is critical. It's so critical to know when a book was written, who it was written to, why it was written to help understand it. Because otherwise you can draw some conclusions that aren't necessarily valid conclusions if you just uh, assume things. Let me, let me give you an illustration. I had a friend in high school whose dad helped start the Ponderosa Steakhouse chain. Now, if you're young, you say, Ponderosa Steakhouse, what's that? Um, if you're old like me, you remember when there were Ponderosas everywhere. And when we were in high school, that chain was just flourishing. And I remember going to her house and, and coming back and talking about 
all this stuff that they had. They had this, they had this huge swimming pool in their backyard. They had a game room downstairs that had a pinball machine in 1975 in their house. It was like, and you didn't have to put quarters in it. It was the best thing ever. Um, They had this big chandelier, all this land. They had outbuildings that were filled with cars because he was a, he was a, a fan of the marmot cars that were, that were uh, produced early in the 20th century. Um, all kinds of stuff. Now, if I were to describe what the Klepses had, that's what I would say. But if I was the executor of Mr. and Mrs. Klepses' estate and, began to, and somebody said, what did they have? I'd start listing things, and that would include stuff like silverware, you know, 126 manila file folders. It would have all of the detail of Auric vacuum cleaner. It, do you understand the difference in perspective that it makes based on why something is being written? If you know why it's being written, it makes all the difference in the world. The letters from John, the f- letter of 1 John that we're going to s- study was not written to any particular individual. It's not like John says, hey, this letter's from John and it's going to Bill. It actually, John just jumps right into the text and he wrote that letter to be circulated among all the churches to communicate a message that had to go out broadly in a time when there was no television, no internet, no YouTube. He wrote the letter so that it could go from this church to this church, be copied and go to these churches, be copied again and go to these churches, because there was something very important that he needed to say. What was it that John wanted to communicate? I think everything fits broadly in three categories that you'll see over the next several weeks. What was it that John wanted to communicate? He wanted to communicate confidence in Jesus. We're going to talk a, a little bit about that, but that's a theme that will, that will go all the way through the book of 1 John. And let me just say, take some time if you have the opportunity to this week to just sit down and read from the beginning of 1 John to the end of 1 John. Read it like a letter. It's five chapters. You can do that. Do it multiple times if you're able to. He wanted to communicate confidence in Jesus. He also wanted to communicate confidence in how to live. He wanted to talk to followers of Jesus and say, this is what it looks like If you're going to follow Jesus, this is what it looks like, confidence in how to live. And the last thing that he wanted to communicate was um, he wanted to communicate confidence in eternity. It had been a bunch of years since Jesus had been crucified, since he was resurrected, and since he had ascended into heaven. And, And during that time, you know that followers of Jesus had to say, yeah, Jesus said he was coming back, but that's been a long time ago. When's that, when is that going to happen for us? And so John wanted to communicate confidence in eternity. If you've got your scriptures open, take a look there. You can look on screen, look in the app. Here we go. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. If you read those verses and look at the sentence syntax, you're going, what was that all about? Because he goes in kind of multiple directions. But the first thing that you notice is this. John claims, he says, I was an eyewitness of Jesus. 
When I read 1 John the first time, I thought, what's John's motivation in doing that? Is he like playing a trump card uh, with the first words of the letter and saying, hey, you've got to listen to me because I knew Jesus. I saw him. I touched him. I talked to him. I was there with him. And so he's, he's like pulling the one-upsmanship thing to, to kind of fortify his position and to give himself credibility. Was that why he was doing it? Um, not at all. John was writing for a very specific thing that was going on at this point in time. He wanted the readers to have confidence in Jesus, in what they knew to be true. Fifty or sixty years had passed since Jesus' death. Um, Over that period of time, many of the disciples of Jesus had been martyred. Many of the followers of Jesus had died during those fifty or sixty years. A new generation of leaders had grown up, and, and, and in that growing up, they had begun to take the doctrine, the, the, the truth of Scripture, and begun to just tweak it and twist it a little bit. Maybe they did it as a result of their study. Maybe they you know, were just kind of thinking through it. Maybe they did it because of, of late-night conversations where they're talking theology. Maybe they did it um, in order to just gain an audience. They were saying something different so people would be drawn to them. But this form of teaching that was known as Gnosticism had begun to infiltrate the church. And John had to address this false teaching. Understand that eyewitnesses are credible. When somebody's an eyewitness to something, what they say matters. Uh, it matters much more, than, uh, more so than, than somebody who wasn't there that gives their opinion. If you're there, you, you have credibility. It's recognized in the court. It's recognized with, with the law um, that when someone is an eyewitness... They're able to bring something to the conversation that someone who's not an eyewitness can't. Just a second ago, I mentioned that, that John needed to take on Gnosticism. Who were the Gnostics? The word gnosis with a G on the front, on the front end means to know or to enlighten. Um, the Gnostics were people who believed that you could know God, that, that, that you could have this, this experience with God, this enlightenment that came as a result of what was going on in your head and your heart. We don't know the word Gnostics, really. Like, who talks about the Gnostics now, except in church as you enter uh, a series on First John, right? Nobody does. But we do know the word agnostic, Right? When you add the A on the front, it means the opposite of that. So the Gnostics believe that, you, that, that God, you could have this relationship with God by, by knowing or by enlightenment, by knowledge. But the agnostic is someone who believes that you cannot know God. You cannot know if there is a God. Um, l- let me just take a little diversion here, and, and forgive me this morning, I'm kind of doing some teaching. I'm, I'm jumping in the teacher mode, okay, to kind of lay out the background for the next few weeks. Um, an agnostic is someone who believes that you can't know that there's a God. That's different than an atheist, right? A theist believes that there is a God. You, you all remember that from like social studies and world history and that kind of stuff. So a um, um, monotheism, monotheist believes what? There's one God. Polytheism means that there are many gods. Atheism believes that there is no God. It's my contention that in our culture, at this point in time, there are only a few really true atheists. Most people, if they say, ah, no, you know, I don't believe in God, and you push them, 
they're really agnostic. They would say, yeah, there's somebody who made something. There is this higher power. I don't know who that is, whether that's God or Allah or whatever. There's some higher power, but we can't really know. We can't really know until we die. That's agnosticism, all right? You can't know whether or not there is a God. Atheism says there is no God, that we're all here by accident. Uh, the reason that I let you know that is because that's a really good conversation to have with your friends or your family. When, when they say, ah, I don't believe in God, to be able to say, you know, do you believe that there, that there isn't any God at all? Or do you believe that there's a God, but we just can't be certain about it? That opens the door for them to kind of tell their story and, and share what they believe. The Gnostics believe that knowledge or enlightenment was supreme and that matter, matter, physical material, was sinful or evil and that it was separate from the spiritual world. So what's going on in your head and your heart, that's what really matters. What you do with your body doesn't matter much at all. Uh, J.R.W. Stott wrote this about the Gnostics. The body was a base prison in which the spirit was imprisoned and from which it needed to be released by gnosis or knowledge. They believed in salvation by enlightenment. That enlightenment could come by the imparting of an esoteric knowledge in some secret initiation ceremony. The initiated were the truly spiritual people who despised the uninitiated as doomed to an animal, on, uh, to an animal life on earth. Often combined with asceticism, uh, in extreme, they claimed to be righteous irrespective of their behavior. You may recognize that word asceticism or the ascetics because the Gnostics fell into two different ways of thinking. On one end, they believed that matter is irrelevant to spiritual enlightenment, so it doesn't matter what you do because what matters from a spiritual perspective is what's in your head, what's in your heart, that sense of knowledge and enlightenment. What you do doesn't matter at all. The second thing that they thought, that some of the Gnostics thought, was that matter is in conflict with spiritual enlightenment, and so it had to be defeated. And that's called asceticism. If you read um, uh, Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, you'll remember that albino character that beats himself with chains and that pokes himself and draws blood and all that. He was an ascetic who believed that the physical body, the physical material, was in opposition to spirituality. And so it had to be defeated. If you believed that the Gnostic, for the Gnostics, if you believed in Jesus and knew him and loved him in your heart, the way that you lived your life was not a big deal. So if you loved Jesus, but you were intimate with somebody physically that you weren't married to, for the Gnostics, that was no big deal. If you loved God in your heart and had committed yourself to serving Jesus, it didn't matter if you mistreated people at work, if your temper was out of control, if you were mean and spiteful, if your words didn't match your actions, that didn't matter. It wasn't a problem because you knew God and you loved God and you had given your life to Jesus. There was this separation of spirituality in real life. John had to address that false teaching, that heresy, and he had to take it out. He had to, he had to take it on at its heart. He had to take it head on. If Jesus was fully God and fully man, Gnosticism wouldn't have a leg to stand on. In addition, there were people, there were Gnostics who believed that the only way to achieve righteousness, the righteousness that God demands, 
was to never sin. So they isolated and protected themselves from every temptation. They put up barriers so that they could stay pure. And if they did sin, they were doomed. Their sin proved that they didn't really know God at all. John had to address that heresy as well, that false teaching. You know, nobody today ever really does talk about the Gnostics or Gnosticism, except Christians. But those two ideas, those two lies from Satan are ones that he still continues to use if, if you think about it. Have you, ever, have you ever heard somebody say, I love Jesus, I believe in God. When I go to church and we worship, I get this incredibly great feeling, this incredible connection to God. I can feel the presence of God. I know Him and I know I have Him in my heart. Yeah, I'm cheating on my taxes every year, but that doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend and we're not married, but that doesn't matter either. Yeah, I have this anger issue and I treat the maintenance man at work like trash, but that doesn't really matter. That doesn't have anything to do with my relationship with God. That's what the Gnostics thought. Or somebody says, I love God so much that I fast two days every week. I get up at 3.45 every morning, even though I don't go to work until 8 o'clock, so that I can read through the entire Bible every month, so that I can show God how much I love Him. I could never relax or laugh because God might think that I don't think eternity is a serious matter. I would never go to a beach or to a pool. That's how I show God how much I love Him. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't even talk to a woman until after I'm married, just to prove my devotion to God. You get the picture? That's what the Gnostics thought. The Gnostics thought holiness was defined by denial of anything that, that could bring joy or anything that was good. The big problem with the Gnostics, though, was this. While they believed that Jesus was the Savior, that He was the Messiah, and they even believed that He was God's Son, they couldn't reconcile that He lived on earth in a human physical body because human bodies were evil. Physical matter was evil, and it had to be defeated. They couldn't bring those two things together. So they created this weird theology that said that there were all these layers between God and Jesus, and that when Jesus was born, it wasn't a miracle. It wasn't, it, it, it wasn't something supernatural that happened, the virgin birth. It was actually the natural result of Mary and Joseph being married it was a natural birth, and Jesus lived in this physical body, just like all the rest of us, that, that, was, that was evil. But when Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down like a dove, at that point in time, Jesus somehow miraculously, at that point, took on this spiritual body that he then had for the next three years. And when Jesus prayed in the garden, God, deliver me from this, at that point in time, the body changed back to a physical body because the body of God couldn't be beaten, it couldn't be, um, it couldn't be abused, it couldn't be crucified. That, that wouldn't make any sense. So they created this weird sense of theology in order to be able to, uh, to bring that together. You understand, when you understand the historical context, you understand why John had to address that. Some of that process makes some sense in a weird, warped kind of way. It has some truth in it, but it misses the truth completely. 
Understand this, false teaching is rarely so far out of whack that you recognize it immediately. False teaching usually looks good on the surface, but there's some twist, some tweak that you say, is that really right or not? Or you don't pay any attention to it at all. And as time goes by, what started here ends up way over here and isn't the truth at all. So the reason that John says, look, here's the deal. I was with Jesus. I saw him. I touched him. I talked with him. I heard him teach. He was real. He was eternal. He was God. It's not because John was bragging. It's because he was taking on false teaching very directly, very powerfully, very boldly. Listen again to those words. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's Jesus. The life was made manifest. It was apparent. It was evident for anyone to see. And we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. That's Jesus, which was with the Father and was made manifest, was shown to us. John uses two terms in those verses to describe Jesus. He describes Him as the Word of life, the Word of life, and the eternal life. That's not a new concept for John. When John wrote his gospel, he communicated so very clearly and directly that Jesus was eternal. Uh, A few weeks ago, Chris talked about translations of the Bible and kind of gave an overview to help you understand why sometimes we use ESV, sometimes NIV, different kinds of things. One One of the translations that I really like and I use a lot when I study is called the Amplified Bible. If you've got, if you've got version on your, uh, on your phone or if you have that app open and go to the Amplified Bible, what you'll find there is in the translation, when there are words that have multiple meanings, multiple nuances in their meaning, in the Amplified version, it will actually bring all of those nuances together into the text. It's a little bit harder to read because it's got all these words there, parentheses, uh, where, the, where the word meanings are, but, but it can also help you understand the full meaning because it's a literal translation of the original language. John says this in, in chapter 1 of his gospel. John chapter 1 of, uh, of his gospel. In the beginning, before all time, was the Word, Christ Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God Himself. He was continually existing in the beginning, co-eternally with God. All things were made and came into existence through Him. And without Him, not even one thing was made that's come into, into being. John says, before the world existed, Jesus existed. Somehow, in a way that I know I can't explain very well, God existed in three forms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before the earth was ever shaped, before the universe was created, before any of it. And when Jesus came to earth, he came to earth in the form of a human baby. He still carried the nature and the character of God, the sinlessness of God. But he was captured in the body of a human, just like you and me. That says something incredible about the value that God has placed on us. 
He brought his son, the word, into a body just like ours. Jesus didn't come as a dog or an elephant or a giraffe. Jesus didn't come as a statue or an inanimate object. He didn't come as an alien from outer space. He came as a baby, a child, completely dependent on his parents for nourishment and protection. That's incredible when you think about the magnitude of that. Why did he do that? John answers the question for us. He says back in 1 John, why did, why did Jesus come? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with, with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John says, why did Jesus come to earth? It was so that you could know Him, so that you could be in connection with Him, in connection with God, connection with other people. That's that, that word fellowship. Jesus came to bring us together with God. And He said, when that happens, um, Jesus came so that our joy would be complete. We'd be just jazzed about that, about realizing that we're back in fellowship with God and would be so excited because we recognize that you're a part of that too. Um, Jesus came so that we could know Him, so that we could experience Him. Um, I don't know about you, but I look around at people whose lives are a mess, people who are just struggling, who don't have hope, and I think, I just wish that you could experience Jesus. I wish that you could experience forgiveness. I wish that you could experience what it looks like to have your life change. Because when we experience Jesus, it, it does change everything. I want to just tell you two quick stories. Um, I grew up in Ohio. I, I've told you before, my family has had a, a cottage at Crystal Lake up by Carson City since the time before actually I was born. When I was probably eight years old, I tried to learn to water ski for the first time. Um, you know, I can, I can remember those little skis and going through that process. Um, by the time I was 11, I was pretty good uh, on two skis. P probably by the time I was 14, I had learned to slalom ski on one ski, and it was the best thing in the world. I, I could not wait to come to Crystal for the 4th of July to get behind the boat. Um, you know, if you're on any lake over the 4th of July, it's crowded and crazy. I, I would say to my uncle, to Uncle Tom, I said, Uncle Tom, can we get up at 6.30? Can we get up at 7 o'clock to go ski? And Uncle Tom would say, that'd be fine. Because at that point, there's no boats on the lake, and the lake's calm, and skiing is just as good as it can be. It's the, it's the best. Any skiers? Somebody, somebody give me a whoop. Um, yeah, there we go. So Deb and I have six kids right? And we lived away. We didn't get to come to the cottage for a long time. And when we came back into the area and we were able to get to the cottage, I, I want my kids to experience this wonderful thing of skiing. And you know what my kids all said? Well, yeah, that's, yeah, I'll try. That's cool. Um, they would rather tube than ski. And, and here's what I realized. Here's what I realized. I never told my kids the stories of me skiing. I never created in them the excitement of what it feels like to come out of that water for the first time behind the boat 
on, on two skis. I, I never talk to them about it. It is the coolest thing in the world to be up on one and to be able to lean and see this big rooster tail of water shooting out behind. I, I never des- described, I never described for them. This is what, it's so, it's so fun when you're just about out of control and then you regain control again. You get back up on them. It's so fun when you get over and you face plant and end up skipping over the water. It's such a cool, I never told them those stories. And so they kind of have this, uh, yeah, we'll ski, Dad. We'll do that when we get a chance to do it. Do you see where I'm going with that? So much of the time, so much of the time, we expect people who are far from Jesus to just get it and to want it. And we've never told our story. We've never told them the struggles that we've gone through. We've never told them about all those times it took to get up out of the water. We never told them about the times that, that we fell down. And we never told them about the exhilarating joy that comes in knowing Him and having Him transform our lives. Experience is it's such, a, it's such an important thing in, in, in being able to tell our story. Second story I want to tell is this. When I was uh, 20 years old, my family went to Colorado to snow ski for the first time. My dad learned how to snow ski when he was 50 years old in Colorado. And I remember thinking, that's such a cool thing because 50 is really, really old. Um, <laughs> those were the days, right? Um, so we're, we're in Colorado at Breckenridge. My dad's taken lessons. My sister, although she had skied a little bit, she's taken lessons too. My nature is such that you just go and do, man. And so I'm, I, I had been skiing before I had grown up skiing in Ohio. Um, the skiing in Ohio is very different than the skiing in Colorado. Um, and so for, for the first day and a half, I'm just tooling all over the place. And in Breckenridge, you can actually get to the top of the mountain, uh, 10,000, 11,000 feet, somewhere in there, and you can ski for three miles without stopping. Um, there aren't any ski slopes like that in Ohio, just so you know. Um, so... Uh, so I say to my sister at noon on the second day that we're there, I said, Cher, you've got to go with me. She's a year older than I am. I said, you've got, you've got to go with me to the top of the mountain because you can ski forever. And she said, can I do it? I'm not that good. And I said, oh, you, I've been watching you. You're good enough, right? You, you can do it. It's, it's, they're all beginner slopes and some intermediate slopes. You have to, you know, you have to take lift up and then ski down, take another lift up, ski down, take another lift before, actually, I think it was four lifts to get to the top of the mountain. Um, I said, all of those, you can navigate all of those without any problem at all. She said, okay. So we take the lift up, we ski down, you know, there's a nice little hill there, get to the bottom of the next lift, ski up to the top of the next lift, and... I realized, you know, in order to get to the other lifts, there, there's this slope that was black diamond. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't know that it was. I don't know that it was an expert, but it was a very advanced intermediate um, slope. And my sister looked at me and said, "What have you done?" Um, and you know, the bad thing about when you're in that place on a ski slope there's not anything that you can do except figure out how to get down one mogul at a time or whatever it is. Uh, my sister still gives me grief about that. She did make it up to the top. She did make it down. She's still alive. You know, that, that's all good. But here's the deal. I, 
I wanted to share my joy with her, and I perceived that she was in a completely different place than she was. My analysis was, oh, she, oh yeah, she's got the skill to do everything that it takes to get there. And she wasn't there. What I needed to share with her was, was to get her up to the top of an of a easy intermediate slope to be able to navigate that down so that she could experience the joy that I was experiencing in her timing. That's the call that we have as followers of Jesus, to share our experience, but not to just share it because we want to or, or to expect everybody gets that, but to be attuned with where they are so that, so that we can help them experience that joy as well. Uh, have you ever talked to somebody that went on a mission trip when they got back, the, the McCassels were in first service, and I'm anxious to talk to them. Anytime somebody goes uh, on a vacation or goes on a mission trip and comes back, they had this new experience, and you say, how was it? They immediately start talking, right? It's a cool thing. They can talk probably three or four hours about the stuff that they experienced on that trip. And most people at about 10 minutes are saying, oh, yeah, you know what? I've got an appointment. I've got to go someplace else. Um, because... We've not experienced that, and we have, to, we have to be able to give it to people in a way that they can manage it. Um, the, I could tell you about Deb and my experience going to Iceland, and I could talk for a long time about what it was like to be in Iceland for several days. But for most people, they'd be doing this and saying, ah, yeah, cool. But if I have that conversation with Michael and Nancy Andrews, who did a trip to Iceland, we're going to have a lot different kind of conversation because they get it. We've got, to, we've got to pay attention to who we're having the conversations with. Jesus had experienced life with Jesus. Or John had experienced life with Jesus. Tangible life, touching, talking, hearing him speak. Sixty years later, he was still um, absolutely excited about it. He was still able to recognize the way that, 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 um, that Jesus had worked in his life and transformed him. He had gone from living a life devoted to making a living by fishing to just what Jesus had called him to, to live in a life making fishers of men. And John wanted everybody who read his letter to experience that same transfer, transformation, to experience that same joy that came from loving and knowing Jesus and loving and knowing other people. Um, if I can draw everything together with this in terms of conclusion, let me just share what I think the, the, the big truths are from those first four verses of 1 John. The first is this, Jesus was and is real. John says, you know, it doesn't matter what, what you hear anybody say. For us, there are people who say, yeah, Jesus, they kind of made Jesus up a couple hundred years after he was dead because uh, we needed to have that kind of perfect figure, sacrifice thing. John says, look, Jesus was real. I was there. I saw him. I interacted with him. Second thing that John says is Jesus is eternal. When you, when you look at those first four verses of 1 John, Jesus says, John says, Jesus was there with the Father at the beginning. He is the eternal one. Jesus is eternal. Third thing he says is Jesus was and is God. Jesus coexisted with God before the beginning of time. Make no doubt about it. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. And the fourth thing, Jesus was man. 
He lived in a body like us and he never sinned. That's the only way that he could be the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for us. Jesus was man. And the last thing is this. Jesus came to connect us to God and to connect us to each other. Jesus came. He came to earth so that we could have a relationship with God and so that we could have a real relationship with other people who know and love God as well. Um, you know, whenever someone, um, whenever somebody decides to make a counterfeit bill, it has to look pretty close to what a real bill looks like, right? If, if there's a bad guy and he's really good at what he does and, and he produces $20 bills, here's what's going to happen. That guy's going to take that counterfeit 20 and he's going to go to Meijer, right? And he's going to use it to help buy some groceries. And, and the cashier may not notice that. that so the guy walks, walks out with his cart full of groceries, having used that counterfeit 20. And maybe 20 or 30 minutes later, that cashier gives that counterfeit 20 to another customer in the change that, uh, because they need change back. That customer takes that counterfeit 20, and on their way home, they stop at a yard sale, and they see a piece of furniture that they've been looking at forever, and they use that counterfeit 20 to buy that furniture at the yard sale. It's a cool thing. The person who is at the yard sale, who's having the yard sale, takes that 20, and later that night, they go to, to Speedway and get some gas, and they use that 20 to pay for the gas. At the end of the night, who's ever closed in Speedway takes that money, bundles it all up, puts it in the bag, and takes it to the bank and drops it off. And the next morning, the person at the bank begins to count that money. And as they're working through the money, they, discuss, they see, because they've been trained to notice, this counterfeit $20 bill. And they call Speedway and say, we can't honor this. This is not authentic. It's not real. Now, here's the interesting thing. That counterfeit 20 did lots of good that day, right? It bought groceries. It bought a piece of furniture at a yard sale. It bought gas for the car. But when it, when it came time for it to be redeemed, the verdict was, this is not authentic. The challenge for us today is this. For all of us, we can go through the motions of doing what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We can be like the Gnostics and say, oh, it's all up here. You know, I've got this relationship with God that's in my head and my heart. It's all good. And yet we've never really given Jesus our whole heart. It's never, he's never transformed our bodies. Our, he's never transformed the way that we do life. And we're playing spiritual games with counterfeit money. There will come a time that we stand before God and God will either say, welcome home, or he'll say, I never knew you. The challenge for us is to have that relationship with Jesus, to let him do the work in us, because he's the eternal one. He loves us more than anyone else. Um, we're going to sing in just a little bit. And I, I just want to encourage you, as we sing this song, it may be that you need to have a conversation with God, and I invite you to just come down front and pray. 
if after the service you want to have more conversation, you want to talk, I'll be down here and, and I would love to do that. Let God do his work in you. Let's, let's pray together. God, I thank you for this book that we're jumping into. Thank you for John writing it and recognizing what was going on in the world. God, I thank you that even today we can realize that those things that were happening, that false teaching that's there, it, it creeps in so easy into our lives. God, we ask, we invite, um, we seek you to come in and change us, to transform us from the inside out so that we can have fellowship with you, fellowship with each other, and so that we can experience the incredible joy that you designed us for, that you created us to experience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.